Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, it's Dr. Will Cole. This podcast is the manifesto for a new breed of health seekers. This is the art of being well. What's up, everyone? It's Dr. Will Cole, and welcome to The Art of Being Well. I am a leading functional medicine expert. I get to consult people around the world via webcam. I started one of the first functional medicine telehealth centers in the world over a decade ago, and I'm a New York Times bestselling author. I wrote Intuitive Fasting, which is my newest book, and The Inflammation Spectrum, which is newly in paperback, so check that out and Ketotarian. If you want to learn more about my clinical work, the telehealth center, the books, and there's lots of free resources there for you as well, you can check it all out at drwillcole.com. That's D-R-W-I-L-L-C-O-L-E.com. All right, let's get to today's guest. He is a brilliant human being, an esteemed colleague. You're going to learn so much from him. His name is Dr. Jason Fung. He is a nephrologist and one of the world's leading experts on fasting for weight loss and type 2 diabetes and so much more. He is a co-founder of The Fasting Method, which teaches people how to incorporate intermittent fasting and healthy eating in their lifestyle and supports them on their journey to better health. He is a New York Times bestselling author whose books include The Obesity Code, the Diabetes Code, the Obesity Code Cookbook, the PCOS Plan, Life in the Fasting Lane, and the Complete Guide to Fasting. Dr. Fung completed medical school at the University of Toronto and a fellowship in nephrology at the University of California. You all are going to learn so much in this conversation. And stay tuned through the entire conversation with Dr. Fung, because at the end, I answer another one of your burning health questions in an Ask Me Anything. All right. This is Dr. Jason Fung's Art of Being Well. Dr. Fung, it has been too long. It's great to see you again. Oh, it's good to see you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course. Anytime. So I want to talk about where people are going to be able to learn from the, dare I say, like the king of fasting. Can I call you the demigod of fasting? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I think you deserve that title. <laughs> but let's go back to what brought you to the science of fasting? What was the the precipice of, of you leaning into this amazing tool? Well, um, I had been thinking about weight loss uh, for a while because, you know, I treat a lot of uh, type 2 diabetics. And the thing is that if they lose weight, the diabetes often gets better. And therefore, if you don't have the diabetes, then you can prevent a lot of the sort of downstream complications like kidney disease, which is what I dealt with a lot, but also heart attacks and strokes and cancer and all these really, really bad issues were, were sort of predicated on, uh, you know, type 2 diabetes would increase your risk and therefore getting it rid of it or making it better was important. So then I, I really uh, thought about the sort of science of weight loss, which unfortunately doesn't seem to happen a lot. There's a lot of what I think is very simplistic notions of sort of calories in, calories out. And it's promoted very heavily, both by a lot of academic physicians and as well and in universities, as well as a lot of these sort of other people who, who, who want to equate sort of calories uh, you know, weight loss to just calories. Um, and it always seemed to me very simplistic because the thing is that if you think about even something like, uh, what you eat, for example, obviously that has a huge impact in terms of your weight, but they try to boil it down to say calories so that a hundred calories of broccoli is as fattening as a hundred calories of cookies. And it's like, okay, but that doesn't really make a lot of sense. Like almost nobody gets fat eating calories because uh, eating broccoli because, and it doesn't matter how many calories you're eating. There's all these other things that happen when you eat, say, broccoli, as opposed to cookies, um, you know, in terms of satiety, in terms of hunger, in terms of sort of uh, pleasure reward, all these sorts of things. So they're, they're in no way the same yeah. in terms of fattening ability. Yet all these people, especially a lot of the uh, sort of academics, were like, oh, it's all about calories, all about calories. It's like, um, but that doesn't reflect the reality mm -hmm. of the situation. Um, so that was one of the things that sort of struck me as very odd. And that's mm -hmm. one of the things that I spent a lot of time talking about is that really, you really want to look at the hormonal changes in the body because our body mm -hmm. sort of does what it does based on the hormones. So if your hormones tell you to do something, you do something. If, you know, when we're talking about body fat, there are certain hormones that are going to increase body fat and certain hormones that are going to not increase body fat. So you want to make sure that you're doing it because that's the language that the body speaks. Calories is not in any way what the, what the body speaks. So you can take zero calorie foods like diet soda, for example, very highly processed, highly artificial and you can say, well, you know, I've taken out the sugar, I've left the sweetness, but uh, it has zero calories. Therefore, it should cause weight loss. Mm -hmm. So when was the last time somebody said, oh, I just switched to Diet Coke and lost 30 pounds? It's like, I don't think that ever happens because, mm -hmm. you know, it's not like we haven't tried it. Like they sell millions of cases of these diet sodas every year. It's been around since the, I don't know, the 60s or 70s. So it's not a secret that you mm -hmm. can get zero calorie foods and zero calorie drinks. And, you know, you could, you could get fake. You remember there's the fake fat, the Olestra, that was zero calorie fat. You could get zero calorie sugar. So you could replace most of your calories 
foods with zero calorie foods, you just didn't lose weight. That was the problem. And it's because the hormones, uh, you know, and, and the complexity of the, the sort of uh, hormonal changes in the body, you haven't addressed that. You had mm. only addressed the single thing, which is calories. So that's sort of where I started from. And then I, as, I, as I sort of thought about it more, one of the things that came to me, which was uh, very influential in terms of changing your calories, is the fasting, for example. So when you eat certain hormones, like insulin goes up and certain hormones go down. When you don't eat, it's the opposite. So insulin falls, but other hormones, these counter-regulatory hormones go up. And that's going to have an effect on your body. Mm -hmm. So the thing is that all foods have different effects on the hormones. So all foods are different fattening effects. And fasting tended to be very good in a number of ways. So if you think about it, one is that you're letting insulin fall. So as insulin falls, we know that insulin inhibits lipolysis, for example. In lay terms, insulin blocks fat burning. That is, when you eat, your insulin goes up your body wants to store fat, right? It wants to store those calories as fat, which is just a, a sort of storage form of calories, right? So when you eat, insulin goes up, you want to store fat. When you store, want, are storing fat, you don't want to burn fat. That's, you know, it's going in, it's not coming out. So that's what insulin does. When insulin goes up, you can't burn fat. That's just physiology, right? So if you're going to well, if you want somebody to burn body fat, you can't have insulin high all the time. You're going to block them. And that's we, we know this because when you give people insulin, like mega doses of insulin, like we do for diabetes and so on, they gain weight. It's almost yeah. inevitable because you're creating this sort of one-way valve. If you give people tons and tons of insulin, they're going to be able to store fat, but they're not going to be able to burn fat because you're inhibiting this lipolysis. So therefore, the key is to let people's insulin levels fall, and therefore, they can access those stores of body fat. So one of the best ways to do that, of course, is fasting, because when you're eating zero, you can't go lower than zero. So when you fast, your insulin is going to fall sort of as maximally as you can compared mm -hmm. to other things. But there's all these people that said, oh, fasting bad for you, fasting bad for you. And, um, you know, you, you won't have any energy and you won't have any, you won't be able to concentrate and uh, it's going to burn muscle and all these sort of things that had been put up there as reasons why you shouldn't be fasting. It's going to wreck your metabolism. And when, when you look into the science, the complete opposite. So for example, people will say, well, your body's going to start shutting down. It's like, okay, but let's go back to physiology and let's think what happens. So as insulin falls, your body is going to start burning up the stores of body fat. If you have a lot, then there's no reason for it to shut down. In fact, because your sympathetic nervous system is being ramped up, your noradrenaline is going up, your growth hormone is going up. In fact, your metabolic rate is going to stay stable or even go up. Mm -hmm. So when they do studies of fasting, for example, and they've done this, they take somebody and they don't give them any food for four days and measure the metabolic rate at time zero and after four days of not eating. Mm -hmm. They're burning about 10% more calories per day at day four of zero food. Why? Because the hormones are telling them to burn fat, yeah. uh, burn 
calories, right? And it's being taken from the body fat. So in fact, it is an extremely effective way to lose weight in certain conditions. And you have to know how to use it, but it's a tool basically. Mm -hmm. So it can do a lot of good or it can do a lot of bad. What we've done, of course, is we had sort of forgotten about it and said, oh, we should never fast. We should never fast. You should eat, 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 even to lose weight. It's like, but how's that going to work, right? Yeah. Like if you continually eat, how do you actually expect to lose any weight because you're keeping your insulin high? And this is, this is one of those sort of funny things that, you know, I, I never understand why people don't kind of get that concept. So yeah. I started talking about this years ago because the science was fairly obvious. I mean, it had been worked out 50 years ago and it's not like I just made it up, right? So <laughs> fasting has been used for thousands of years. As a physician, I actually tell people to fast all the time. When they go for surgery, they have to fast. When they have to go for colonoscopies, they have to fast. After surgery, they have to fast. When they get sick, they have to fast. When they go for fasting blood work, they have to fast. So here I am telling people day in, day out that you have to fast for this, you have to fast for that, you have to do this, do that. And then, you know, on the other hand, people are saying, but you should never fast. I'm like, why? Like I've told thousands of people to fast. Nothing mm -hmm. bad has ever happened if they're not like malnourished. So why am I all of a sudden afraid to use fat? Like I'll, I'll, you know, I'll tell people to do it before surgery, but I won't tell them to do it in a therapeutic sense, right? Yeah. That doesn't even make any sense because I've done it so many times that I know that nothing bad happens. So now what I want to do then is use it as a therapeutic tool to get people to lose weight so that they can control their blood sugars, they can lose weight. That puts them at lower risk if they can lose weight of type 2 diabetes, which puts them at lower risk of heart attacks, strokes, cancers, kidney disease, blindness, all kinds of things. Yeah. And so, so that's where it sort of came from. It's it sort of, uh, it, it's been an interesting sort of journey Yeah. Uh, that uh, we went so far into believing that this, this, uh, you know, that, that anytime we don't eat is a time we're doing ultimate damage to our bodies. It's like, mm -hmm. what a crazy notion that was like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, as I said, fasting has been used for thousands of years. So if anything bad was you know, going to happen, we would have found out about it 2000 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Not like fasting is good for you. Cause remember fasting had always been considered very good for you, right? You fast for spiritual reasons, you fast for health reasons. It's actually one of the oldest dietary interventions. And so how can it go from being good for you? And mm -hmm. then since 2000, it's bad for you. It's like, right. what, for 2000 years, it's good for you. And for the last 20 years, it's bad for you, even as we've become more obese. Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. No. So that was, yeah, that was sort of how it came, all came about. In a perfect world, what would you like to get done every day? Starting your day with de-stress blend is the first step in making healthy decisions throughout the day by creating a better habit loop. Ned is a USDA certified organic brand that I love and have loved for years. All of Ned's full spectrum hemp oil is extracted from USDA certified organic hemp plants grown by an independent farmer named Jonathan, now your farmers, my friends, in Colorado. The de-stress blend from Ned is very smart. It's a one-to-one -one formula of CBD and CBG, and it's made from the world's purest full-spectrum hemp, 
and features a botanical infusion of ashwagandha, cardamom, and cinnamon. CBG is known as the mother of all cannabinoids because of how effective it is at combating anxiety and stress by inhibiting the reuptake of GABA, which is the neurotransmitter responsible for stress regulation. It also has ashwagandha, which is an amazing adaptogens. You all know that I love adaptogens and the science around it. The delicious taste of de-stress blend is thanks to a botanical infusion of cinnamon and cardamom. If you'd like to give Ned a try, Art of Being Well listeners get 15% off Ned products with code WILLCOLE. Visit helloned.com slash WILLCOLE to get your 15% off. Thank you, Ned, for sponsoring The Art of Being Well and offering our listeners a natural remedy for some of life's most common health issues. Our next partner has a product that I love. I started taking Athletic Greens a long time ago, and it's just super convenient, it's nutrient dense, and it's a great way to support your gut health, your energy levels, your immune system. It's just just super smart. So what is this stuff? With one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. So it's lifestyle friendly, whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free, and it also contains less than one gram of sugar with no GMOs, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything, and it still tastes really good. It costs you less than $3 a day, you're investing in your health, and it's cheaper than that cold brew habit at Starbucks. It's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's all you have to do. No need for a million different products. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D. I have to say, when I'm looking at labs, I see vitamin D deficiency with patients all day long, and it's really important for supporting your immune system and energy levels, balancing inflammation, So they're going to give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs of Athletic Greens. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash willcole. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash willcole to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. From Dear Media and Rom-Com Pods comes a scripted podcast so outrageously inappropriate, we can't believe they let us put it on the air. Meet my best friend, Allie. Like, gross, close best. Hello? Wait, are you peeing? Everyone loves a messy bitch. And Allie's life was about to get a whole lot messier. Maybe 2022 is going to be my year. Yeah, 2022 is definitely not going to be her year. Allie's going to bone, marry, and bury three different people. Get it? Bone, marry, bury? Like, fuck, marry, kill? I just wanted to say that, but it didn't clear legal. Ready to play? Introducing Bone, Mary, Barry, starring Sarah Hyland, Harvey Guillen, and Tommy Martinez. Make sure to follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this. Bone, Mary, Barry is brought to you by Sakara, Modern Fertility, Blue Land, and Roderm. It really says more about our culture today than it does about anything else. Like, how far have we removed ourselves 
and divorced ourselves from where we came from as a species, that that's radical. Something that is so part of our, our world and not just culturally, but you said also spiritually, but also from an ancestral health perspective, if you're looking at genetics and epigenetics, wouldn't you say that's the case? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's this sort of hubris that we know better than anybody before us. You know, our ancients were just idiots, right? It's like, okay, so you know, of course, that if you go back to say the 1970s and stuff, you have this notion that you have to balance feeding and fasting, right? So feeding is a time that you store energy and fasting is a time that you're going to use that energy. You keep them in balance, you're going to do all right. If you eat all the time, then you're going to gain weight. If you don't, if you fast all the time, you're going to lose weight. And that's not necessarily a good thing back then, right? So the whole thing is that there's a balance. And that's why you have this term break fast, breakfast. You break your fast and you have to fast in order to break Mm -hmm. your fast. If you're constantly feeding, you'll never be able to break your fast because you've never fasted. So the whole point was that this is not something completely unnatural and unusual. The point is that this is actually just part of a healthy balance. Mm-hmm. And I think that what has happened is that our hubris has been that we know better than everybody before us and we're going to eat 10 times a day and call that healthy because everybody else was an idiot in the 60s and 70s. Like they didn't know anything, right? And even though we had never done that before, we sort of uh, had this idea that we could do better uh, mm-hmm. by eating all the time. Of course, even as we developed this sort of huge obesity epidemic, we still stuck to our guns and t- instead of saying, well, what's different between now and the 70s, right? And one of the big differences really is that people didn't eat all the time in the 70s. You had a proper period of fasting. That is, you ate dinner on average, in like, say, six o'clock, you ate breakfast at eight o'clock, that's 14 hours of fasting every day. And if you're a bad boy and got sent to bed without dinner, that's 20 hours of fasting. Nothing bad happened. People just learned their lesson and then went on with life. So, you know, we've completely sort of gone away from the way we used to eat. I mean, I use the 70s because it's a relatively modern time, but it's equally true sort of a hundred years ago, a thousand years ago. Nobody is just constantly grazing throughout the day. It's just not something that's Mm -hmm. the way that we we uh, do things. And so the way our bodies evolve is that we eat, we store energy, we don't eat, we, we burn energy, right? So, you know, if you want to burn energy, you need to give your body time to burn it. Mm-hmm. You can't just keep putting it in. Yeah. So there's so many different ways to fast and there's time restricted feeding. There's, you know, multiple day fast, there's fasting, mimicking diets. What in your experience have you seen to be the most effective? What are you recommending most for most people to do most of the time? Um, I tend to stick with shorter frequent fasts. So time-restricted eating is a fairly decent way to go. Uh, it tends to be not super, super effective if you have a lot of weight to lose or if it's very stubborn weight loss. Mm-hmm. Just because if you think about, again, going back to the 70s, you're talking about a 14-hour fasting period. And that's really to stay weight stable. So if you're only upping it to 16 hours, you're you're not going to get a huge Uh, you know, bang for your buck. On the other hand, um, you know, in the 60s, they used to do these long, long fasts. Like when they were fasting, they they, they, they weren't kidding around. It was like 30 days at a time. And the problem with that, of course, is that the longer you go, the 
it's more powerful, certainly, but then your risk goes up and, you know, there's other problems that may come up. So there is a problem, for example, with refeeding syndrome back when they're doing 30 and 60 day fasts and stuff. So that's something you always have to be aware of. If you're older, if you're taking medications, then you don't want to put, remember, fasting is a stress on the body, um, just like exercise is a stress on the body. It's good to put stress on the body because that allows your body to overcome it. But if you put too much stress on the body, it's not good. Just like overexercise is actually not a very good thing for a lot of people. So the point is that uh, it is a stress. You have to, so, so, so you, you know, we don't want to go sort of too short because you're not going to affect, you know, I want to go too long, like 30 or 60 days. It might be fine if you want to do it once in a while, if you're like, so like really extreme, but uh, for most part, people can do very well with sort of like 16 is a little short, you know, 24 one meal a day sort of schedule, for example, does a lot of good things in terms of scheduling. One is very easy to do because you're still eating one meal a day. So if you have to take medications, for example, you can still take it with that meal. Uh, the other thing is that it allows you that social period uh, where you're eating with uh, family and friends mm-hmm. and so on. And uh, the other thing is that it's, it's sort of short enough that it's not going to interfere with a lot of day-to-day stuff. You do like a five-day fast or something, and I've done these. The problem is then when somebody goes, oh, let's go out and, you know, go out, let's catch up or something like that, right? So you're not talking about just meals. You're talking, it's a social thing too, right? So yeah. then if you're, if you're trying to fast, it, it's, it's, it's awkward. Mm-hmm. So that 24-hour fasting period turns out to be an easy one for a lot of people to implement. And of mm-hmm. course, you know, the easier it is to implement into your day-to-day life, the easier it is for you to keep to it, right? Yeah. There's all these competing things for for your time. So that I wind up recommending a lot as people get a little bit more comfortable with, you know, going, you know, so you start out slow, you start out with 16, then you can stretch it, try, try 24. And then sometimes when you need to get that extra oomph, like say, for example, you've gone out and you're gone on holiday, you gained a bit of weight, it's the pandemic, you gained a little weight, then you can add a few more of these sort of longer than 24 hour fast, 36 hours, 48 hours. Got it. That's generally what I recommend. I got it. I love it. So an OMAD, one meal a day, do you recommend people to do, do you like a 23 to one? I've just from a calorie standpoint of getting your calories in a, in a one or two hour window, what have you found to be the, the best, easiest way for people to do it? I think the best thing is to just treat and, and this is assuming you're trying to lose weight. Um, so if you're, if you're trying to stay stable in weight, of course, then it's a totally different thing. One is that you don't necessarily have to fast for 23 hours unless you have a different reason, religious reason or something else. Right. Mm-hmm. But assuming that you're trying to lose weight, then what you should really do is try and eat as normally as possible. So the point is that normally say you eat three meals a day, for example, let's take an example. You have 500 calories at breakfast, 500 at lunch, and 1,000 at dinner. If you try to stuff all 2,000 calories in at dinner and have no breakfast or lunch, you're going to get, maybe you'll get an effect, but not a huge effect in terms of weight loss. What you're trying to do is you're trying to say, take nothing at breakfast, nothing at lunch, and then eat your normal 1,000 calorie dinner. So the question is, where's that extra 1,000 calories come from? Won't your metabolic rate go down? And the answer is no, because when you're not eating, you're allowing your body to now open up the body fat 
So your body is going to essentially eat those calories from breakfast. It's going to take it from your stores, which is your glycogen, which is in the liver, or your body fat. Same thing with lunch. You've got 500 calories that you normally eat at lunch, but instead you're going to let your body eat those calories from your own body store. So if you have type 2 diabetes, if you have high sugars, you're going to actually burn off some of that sugar. You're going to burn off some of the body fat, and then you want to eat as normally as possible. Maybe you eat a bit, a bit more than normal. Maybe you don't. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people have found that when they do that, they're, they're, they're actually fine just eating their regular dinner. Mm-hmm. And that's the way you want to do it. I mean, a lot of studies have tried to, you know, oh, there's something magical about the fasting. So you can actually stuff 2,000 calories into your dinner. It's like, there's not that much magic in it. It's all physiology. You try and stuff all of your calories into that one meal you're just not going to lose that much weight. Like maybe mm-hmm. you do, maybe you don't, I don't know, but it's not going to be as effective as it should be. Mm-hmm. So you recommend a slight caloric deficit, just not chronic caloric restriction. Is that what you advocate for? Yeah. The thing, the whole thing about this calorie deficit idea is that you can never actually run the calorie deficit. So if you think about the energy balance equation, and again, this is where I think a lot of people think about it very simplistically. They think, Okay, so body fat equals calories in, calories out, right? So it's not an inequality, it's an equal sign, right? So it's either got to come from body fat, from your food, and what you burn, right? So that's it. There, everything has to balance. You can't run a deficit. The point is that if you have stuff in storage, you have a, a number of calories in storage, if you don't get your insulin in check, then you can't access that storage. That that sort of door is closed. So if you eat fifteen hundred, if you're burning two thousand calories, and you're taking in fifteen hundred, but your insulin is high and you can't access the stores, then you you can't run a deficit. Mm-hmm. Your body actually has to reduce its expenditures by five hundred. On the other hand, if you do the fasting and let the, allow that door to open. You could burn 2,000 calories. You could take 1,500 from food, say at dinner time, but take 500 from your body fat stores. Now Mm -hmm. you've balanced that equation, right? So you never, it's not, you know, this whole idea of a calorie deficit. It's it's based on the, you know, assuming that your calories out or your body expenditure is stable. It's not. There are three variables here, right? They Mm -hmm. always say there's two variables, calories in and calories out. No, there's three variables. There's the calories in, which can supply calories for energy, for calories out. And there's body fat, which is storage, which can also supply right. energy for uh, metabolism. Or it can go up if, if, if you give it a lot of insulin, for example. Yeah. So all of the, those three quantities are always going up or down. Mm-hmm. And they're always in flux, but they all have to equal each other. So mm-hmm. the key is, the key thing is controlling the insulin, which allows you to let, to, 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 to burn that body fat. Remember, insulin inhibits lipolysis. That's not just a, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not controversial. It's yeah. been shown like for the last basic. 50 years plus, yeah. right? You give people insulin, they can't burn body fat because you're, you're telling it, you're giving it the signal, store body fat, don't mm-hmm. burn it, store it. 
So, so the, the point is that it's, you, you are running a so-called caloric deficit if you want to think about it that way, but there never can be a caloric deficit. What you're doing is you're allowing the body to burn body fat. Therefore, yeah. as you eat less food, you're not running that deficit. You're just taking some from food, some from storage, and therefore your metabolic rate doesn't go down. Got it. So I'm thinking of the people, some of the people that listen to the podcast, a lot of people in the autoimmune community, people that may be normal weight or underweight, they're not looking to lose weight, but they hear about the research about, you know, the gut microbiome benefits of, of fasting, or maybe some lowered inflammation or the longevity benefits of fasting. Do you, what sort of modifications would you make for somebody that doesn't want to lose weight per se, but they want to get these other benefits of fasting. Oh yeah. And, and that's um, perfectly legitimate because some people do notice a lot of benefits from, from these other things. So if you're not trying to lose weight, then of course you may want to adjust your fasting period, or you may want to adjust your diet on when you are eating. So when you are eating, maybe you do want to eat the full 2000 calories that you would normally take in a day all in one meal, mm-hmm. because now you're, you're again, you, you, you're sort of balancing out the the, the calories, right? Yeah. So you're not you're not drawing down the storage because you don't want to in this case. You don't want to lose weight, so you're not drawing down the storage. But at the same time, you're getting that long period of fasting, which is going to affect your uh, gut microbiome. Like everything affects your gut microbiome: the foods you eat and the foods you don't eat. Same thing with um, autoimmune, for example. So there's some data showing that hey it may play a role in terms of things like autophagy and therefore affect immune cells. So if your, your immune cells tend to be overactive, maybe they'll get sort of normalized by this. And it has worked for some people anecdotally. So uh, if they want to do it for that, then sure. But, but again, you're, you're just trying to, you know, you, you just want to listen to your body. If you're, if, if you are hungry, that is your body is telling you, you need to mm-hmm. take more food or if you're losing too much weight, then yes, you have to eat more food. Mm-hmm. Something that I know that I get asked a lot and I, I'm sure you get asked 10 times more, what breaks a fast? You and I both love peak tea. We love Simon Chang at peak tea. So, um, but let's talk about, can they have tea? Can they have coffee? People want to know what they can add to their coffee. Like what, what, what can they get away with is what they're asking. What say you, Dr. Fung? Yeah, these are all great uh, uh, questions. I mean, it's, it's a question that, uh, of, sort of variations of fasting. So classic fasting is water only, but there's a lot of things you could you could uh, add to it. So if you take tea, for example, herbal teas, peak tea has some fasting teas, for example, they're not going to affect insulin a lot. Remember, the, the whole point of fasting for weight loss, per, you know, again, because that's the main reason people are talking about it. But for weight loss, um, the main thing you want to do is make sure that insulin starts going down so that you can actually access those fat stores. Remember, it's like that door, right? If you have too much insulin, you're going to slam the door shut. That fat cell cannot release any energy. So the whole point is that the tea is going to have minimal effect on the insulin. Coffee, black coffee has probably very little effect on the insulin. Mm -hmm. And even if you take foods, so you start taking a little bit of cream, for example, or bone broth or something. Yes, those are are going to have an effect on your insulin. It is food after all. But 
it's not like everything's lost. Like you don't just lose the, the effect. So remember, you're trying to drop your insulin. So as insulin goes down, even if you take a little bit of bone broth or something, or even like a salad or something like that, it's going to blip up your insulin a little bit, then it's going to start falling again. So you're going to continue to get the benefits. And if it allows you to go longer overall, then net, uh, you know when you net it all out, it may be highly beneficial to take a little bit of something during that fasting period. So teas are great, coffee is great, even a little bit of cream is not going to make a huge difference. Um, you know, when you start getting into bone broth and some of these other things, which are clearly more identified as food, you're still going to have a benefit, but it's going to be less and less. So it's, it's a continuum. It's not like a, oh, you know, you had a peanut and therefore <laughs> you got to ruin, you got to start from start zero, back to square right? one. Yeah. Right. It's not quite like that. Those peanuts will get you Dr. Fox. <laughs> <laughs> So I get asked on an almost daily basis on social media and with patients, like what healthy snacks I recommend. What do you recommend, Dr. Cole? Well, a snack that I love, I've been having for a long time, is the delicious grass-fed beef sticks from my friends at Paleo Valley. Just so you know, any sponsor on the podcast is because I love it myself. I recommend it to my patients or both. And this is no exception. The grass-fed beef sticks at Paleo Valley so freaking delicious. They are 100% grass-fed and finished meat from domestic regenerative farms. Please, whenever you can with your dollar is supporting companies that support regenerative farming or are regenerative farmers. They are a gut healthy snack. Most meat sticks can upset your stomach or disrupt digestion likely due to the inflammatory side effects of something called encapsulated citric acid, which is used in most meat stick products. Instead, Paleo Valley beef sticks are naturally fermented, which creates probiotics for a balanced, healthy gut and eased digestion. They are a high-quality, bioavailable protein snack to grab on the go, and Paleo Valley sticks are free of hydrogenated oils, making it one of the healthiest, most nutrient-dense meat snacks on the market. So many delicious flavors. My favorite has to be the jalapeno one. I love the teriyaki. They have summer sausage as well. They have original. You have to check out all these delicious flavors. You can put them in your bag like I do. Have them in between consulting patients, super convenient. If you're having a busy day, take it with you on the go. You'll love it. All you have to do is head on over to paleovalley.com and enter code Dr. Will, that's D-R-W-I-L-L, Dr. Will, and you can get 15% off your first order. Again, that's paleovalley.com, enter code Dr. Will, D-R Will, at checkout for 15% off your first order. What interferes with your happiness? Is something preventing you from living the life you were created for? Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? I'm always talking about on the art of being well and with my patients, that mental health is not separate from physical health. Mental health is physical health. Our brain is part of our body. And a company that I love, that I work with, with many patients, because they're seeing them as far as the mental health side of it, I'm dealing with the physical health, this bi-directional, two sides of the same coin to, for you to live the life you were created for. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating and under... 48 hours, it's not a crisis line, it's not self-help, but what it is, is professional counseling done securely 
online, just like I'm in telehealth, they're in telehealth as well, as far as the therapy side of things. You can send a message to your counselor anytime. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions with your therapist. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it super easy and it's free to change counselors if needed. So you get the right fit for you. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. The service is available for clients around the world and they have licensed professional counselors that specialize in depression, anger, stress, anxiety, family conflicts, relationships, sleeping issues, trauma, grief, self-esteem, so many really helpful therapists to help you on your health journey. Everything you share is confidential, it's convenient, it's professional, it's affordable. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash ABW. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, betterhelp.com slash A-B-W. What do you say to the people that, that say women shouldn't fast and they make that blanket statement? What, what do you say when people ask that? Yeah, again, it's, it's, uh, we have a lot of women in our program. We have, you know, we have a program called the fasting method where we do coaching and, and we have a community and so on. And the majority are women. We have tons and tons of people who do very well on it. So are there some sort of, you know, things you have to take into account. Yes, women and men are different. They, they tend to notice different things. And a lot of it is anecdotal. For example, men tend to, for example, start out very much more quickly, like their weight loss tends to come off much faster at the beginning. That's just something a lot of women and what we've noticed as well. But you know, this idea that men and women, like women shouldn't fast. I don't even know where it comes from. Um, I think that there is a few pieces on the internet and they're talking about female rats and stuff. And it's like, well, again, let's go back. Like, you know, have, is it that women have never fasted in the history, you know, of, of humanity and the millions of years that men and women have been on this earth, women have eaten sort of constantly is that what you think right (laughs) like no we have plenty of experience when men and women don't eat they have very similar effects there's a few nuances perhaps but this whole blanket statement that oh women shouldn't fast is is not true if you know can it change the reproductive cycles yes it can i mean if you're underweight you can have a problem but if you're significantly overweight and you have something say for example pcos which is polycystic ovary syndrome that fasting and that weight loss will actually make you more fertile, for right. example. But, but you know, it, 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 it is, you know, you do have to, you do have to sort of uh, take into account that there are other hormones at, at play mm-hmm. here. For example, uh, estrogen and testosterone, for example. Let's look at girls and boys. And this is the other thing I have to always think about for these people who say, it's all about calories, it's all about calories. Uh, and it's all about willpower, you know, what you eat and what you exercise. Well, look at 13-year-old girls and boys. As soon as they hit puberty, girls will develop 50% more fat than boys. That's just what happens. That's been going on for thousands of years. Boys, amongst other things like pubic hair and deepening of the voice, 
they tend to get more muscular and the women tend to gain more fat. They gain it in their hips, they gain it in their breasts. Like we've noticed this for millions of years. And if you look at overall body fat percentage, it's clearly higher in women than men. And it's probably the effect of estrogen versus testosterone, right? So again, Mm -hmm. one of these things where you have to say, well, we really have to look at the effect of hormones, not the effect of calories. Because you can't say, oh, women have less willpower. That's why they have more fat, which is what a lot of these people say. Oh, it's all about willpower, right? It's not about willpower. It's about the hormones that tell your body what to do. Mm -hmm. So the the thing is that there is differences, but it doesn't mean that women can't lose weight. It, it, It does mean you have to sort of work with them sometimes. Sometimes, for example, again, this is mostly anecdotal, and we found this from uh, working with a lot of people at thefastingmethod.com, is that a lot of women find that they actually have to do a lot longer fasting to get that thing going. And maybe Mm -hmm. it's due to their sex hormones, maybe it's due to the menopausal, when their menopausal weight loss also tends to slow. That's, again, an average. But uh, a lot of women find that they have to do the longer fast, the 36, 24 hour fast in order to get the ball rolling, as opposed to the men of the same age who will do sort of a 16, eight and do great. Right. So mm-hmm. there's a few nuances, but, uh, yeah, I think women should fast the same. I mean, <laughs> it's not so different that they couldn't do it. Brilliant. He said, yeah, I agree. So what do you say also to people who will accuse us that that advocate fasting for people to explore fasting that we are advocating for disordered eating that we are that fasting is just a euphemism for uh, eating disorder what would you say to those people yeah i think those people don't really understand what we're talking about like um Everything is about context. That is, when you're fasting, it's a tool that you can use for weight loss if you want to. There are risks to it, of course. Uh, there are risks, uh, you know, of anorexia nervosa, for example. But just fasting doesn't cause anorexia nervosa. That is a body image disorder where people think that they're too fat when they're actually too skinny, and they can die. So it's not to minimize the fact that there is disordered eating. But the thing is that fasting is about balance, right? You're trying to balance feeding and fasting. So it's not like some dirty word. It's like washing your hands, right? So you should wash your hands sometimes. That's true. Should you wash it 500 times a day? Like, no. Now you have obsessive compulsive disorder. But washing your hands once doesn't give you obsessive compulsive disorder, right? Mm -hmm. That's a psychological disorder where you have a problem with the way you think. Same with fasting. And, and, and again, it's, it's just a tool. If you have a 16-year-old girl who weighs 50 pounds, no, you should not be fasting. If you have a 600-pound man with type 2 diabetes on 200 units of insulin, uh, you know, and he's like 60 years old, he's at huge risk of many problems. The least of my worries is giving him anorexia nervosa. So yeah, it's a tool. So you got to use it. Like It's like saying that, oh, a knife can hurt people, but it can cure people if you do surgery with it. So we should ban knives because it can hurt people. It's like, what are you, an idiot? Like you got to choose the right time and the right place to use mm-hmm. it. So no, don't use fasting in an anorexic-prone girl. Yeah. Yes. Do use it in that 60-year-old, 600-pound man you may just save his life. So 
to say that, oh, you should never do it is, is to me sort of the height of ignorance. It's, it's, it's not acknowledging that this is a tool. It's a powerful tool and therefore it can do a lot of good or it can do a lot of bad depending mm-hmm. on how you use it. But the worst thing you want to do is just give your, don't even give yourself the option because if you yeah. don't, that 600 pound man will get a heart attack and die. Yeah. Well said. I mean, I think it's the last art of context. Our culture just picks these toxic tribal wars where it's like all for or all against versus looking at how these things can be applied and that, that context matters. Oh yeah. It's, it's the sort of social media sort of uh, sound bite that you want. Oh, fasting will give you disordered eating. It's like, yeah, you'll get a lot of likes on that, but you're just losing the whole complexity of how to actually treat people and make them better. Like you got to select the person and you still got to select your tool. So you're mm-hmm. not going to use chemotherapy if somebody has no cancer and just has a sore throat. Why would you give them chemotherapy? right? It doesn't make any sense. Somebody has cancer, then you do give them chemotherapy. So it's mm-hmm. like, which should you say, oh, let's just ban chemotherapy because look at all that harm you did to that guy with the cold. <laughs> you yeah. Massive rounds of chemotherapy. <laughs> well, you'd say, why on earth did you give that guy chemotherapy? You must be stupid, right? Same with fasting. Why mm. would you use fasting in a 16 year old girl? You must be stupid. Like, yes, you shouldn't be. You should be emphasizing proper diet, you know, balancing of foods, eating nutritious foods. There's a whole different thing. By the time you get to, you know, severe disease, diabetes, you're at high risk because you're older. Risk of anorexia is almost zero at that, you know, at that in that age group in a male, 60-year-old male is almost zero. So it's, 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 it's just... It's just sort of like, let's not forget the art of medicine here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Speaking of that, good segue. The show is, is called The Art of Being Well, where I talk about the science and the art of all of this stuff we're talking about. What's the context? How do we use it? What's appropriate for you? That's what the whole podcast is about. So this part of the episode, I call Your Art of Being Well. This is Dr. Fung's Art of Being Well, your favorite things in wellness, where I'll ask you questions and you just give me your favorite things. Are you are you ready for this? Sure. Okay. If you could choose only one food for survival, you're stuck on an island purely on nutrient density, what would that food be? Uh, I think that meat is actually probably the most nutritious food. It's obviously something that, you know, I don't know if you can get, but obviously it's because we're animals. We actually get the most nutrients from animal meat. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's, you know, it just is like, you can argue the ethics of it. You can argue the other thing, but just from a purely medical standpoint, and this is why you see, if you ever watch, (laughs) if you ever watch a survival show, like survivor or something, they don't go, Whoa, I got a root, you know, they, but when they catch a little rat or something, they go, Whoa, that was delicious. Right. And, and it's the same thing, right? We, we derive. So you look at the proteins and the, you know, one meat has a lot of protein, which is what we often are lacking when we don't have an, enough nutrients. And two, uh, it's, it's very bioavailable so that we mm-hmm. actually absorb those and can use those proteins in a much better way than we can plants because we're mm-hmm. animals. So when we eat animals, we yeah. can take that and incorporate and to our body a lot better. Mm-hmm. So meat, you know, uh, and, and that's has nothing to do with the ethics of yeah. eating 
and stuff. Like I'm going to leave that whole part aside because it's a totally, to me, it's a totally different debate, whether it's healthy or whether it's ethical is a completely separate debate. So I, I don't want to mix the two, mm-hmm. but you know, to me, if it, it would be probably meat, then I think most people yeah. want it. Any type of meat. My mind goes to like sardines, anchovies, something like with omega fats and protein. Yeah. What, if you had to pick a meat, what would you pick? I, I, I would do the same. So yeah. sort of like uh, meat, especially the smaller fish, for example, the fatty fish, you know, uh, have a lot of benefits, all those omega-3s and so yeah. on. So certainly uh, seafood and fish and so on, I would probably put way, way up there. Good. All right. So next question, completely opposite. If you had to eat one food for the rest of your life, regardless of health benefits, purely on taste, what would that food be? I think it'd be some kind of sugary food. I think that's probably true for most people, you know, ice cream or something like that, uh, cookies, (laughs) because sugar, of course, and everybody knows this is very rewarding. So people um, you know, it lights up the dopamine receptors. So you eat it and you're happy. And, and I think that's a lot of the reason that, for example, when people feel down, they tend to binge on these sugary foods because they're trying to basically self-medicate themselves, give them a little bit of sort of a dopamine hit um, to get out of this sort of funk that they're in for other reasons, right? So it'd be some kind of sugary food. Like, you know, uh, fruit to me is always very, you know, I love fruit. I think it's very tasty, but it's not the best thing for you if you're trying to lose weight. Mm-hmm. Got it. So my favorite fruit's probably kiwi with the skin on it, biting it. Have you done that before? Uh, Normally no. people peel the skin off the kiwi. The, ki- the skin of the kiwi, it's, it's magical. Is it? It's like slightly tart. You got the tart and the sweet. You have to try it sometime. Hmm. I'll really try that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What are two supplements that have been the biggest game changer for you? Um, I don't generally recommend a lot of supplements. I mean, um, to, to me though, the ones, uh, so a lot of the data doesn't show that a lot of them have benefits, but the two that I do wind up uh, recommending or using a lot of is one magnesium. Um, a lot of people, I think, are a bit low in magnesium, and magnesium tends to sort of relax people so that they're, you know, they sleep better. For example, uh, they don't get the muscle cramps and so on. So I find a, a lot of people do benefit from magnesium supplements um, or Epsom salt baths. And then the other one, um, which uh, I always thought was sort of useful, was omega three. Um, not necessarily for heart health, which it was studied fairly intensively for, and it's still a bit controversial. It doesn't seem to be a huge benefit, but just in terms of sort of joint pains and so on, I, I, you know, a few people have noticed that, you know, when they started taking the omega-3 supplements that they actually did better. I don't know if it's because people were so sort of deficient from this whole low fat era that yeah, they, right. they wound up because they wound up noticing that their skin was better and their mm-hmm. digestive health was better and their joints were better. So I, 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 that, that'd be one of the things, and especially from like cold water and fatty fish and stuff yeah. that I think did make a lot of difference for a lot of people and how they felt. Yeah, I agree. I think it is, is like you mentioned, we were so many people are so low on healthy fats, plus the American diet, modern Western diet, so high in omega six, I think balancing out that omega three, six, nine ratio is another one of the, probably the benefits. It's just sort of rectifying that omega six dominance that are in people's diets. Yeah, I agree. What's your latest 
wellness tool or biohack, something like not food, not supplement. Are you into biohacks at all? And if so, what's like the latest one that you're into? Um, I mean, there's, there's a few that are kind of interesting. So there's always been sleep, which is as a hack, it's relatively underutilized. I think it's becoming more appreciated, but people still don't sort of sleep enough. Mm -hmm. Uh, interestingly, the, if you look at the number of hours that people sleep, it's been going down for decades. So it's not a new thing. Uh, but whether that's healthy for us is a whole other thing. So there is a little bit more recognition. And then the other one is sort of cold exposure, which is, again, I don't think it's new. Like you, you hear stories of, an, you know, they have this in Russia and Scandinavia where they like to jump in pools of cold water and stuff. And the science is catching up. Like there seems to be some benefits to Again, probably underutilized because it's not that fun to jump into a bowl of cold not water. Not fun at all. <laughs> but, you know, is there benefits? Interestingly enough, I think there probably are benefits, yeah. uh, you know, in terms of the browning of white fat and all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. um, it's another know. hormetic effect, right? Just like fasting and exercise that you mentioned. Yeah, it's, a, it's exposure to sort of... Um, you know, low doses of toxic stuff. Exactly. Mm -hmm. All right. What is one wellness brand? It could be a food, a snack, a product that you've really been loving in your life lately. Um, I, I think, as you mentioned, uh, peak tea is very good. So I like tea. I drink it a lot. And um, peak tea has this process where they take very high quality tea and then they do sort of a cold brew, essentially, and then they crystallize it. So it's super convenient. It comes as a little packet, and then you put it in. But the tea itself is wonderfully flavorful. Yeah, so is. they have all different flavors, and, and, and it's a really high quality. It's not the... You know, it's not the least expensive tea, but on the other hand, it's 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 a very good quality tea, and it's very convenient. So essentially, what they do, of course, is they take the the brewed tea and then they crystallize it so that it's essentially you're just rehydrating it. So mm -hmm. it's actually just like as if you had brewed it from scratch, but it takes a lot less time. Yeah, so, so convenient. Yeah, so convenient and 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 really tasty. So just like cold brew coffee, for example, you get more flavor without the harshness the tea it might be the same because i find it very tasty so that's why i drink it i mean i think it's 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 an excellent product great what what's your favorite peak tea flavor if you had to pick uh i i drink all of them actually i tend to gravitate more towards the green teas yeah just because i like green tea but there's also a few that are, you know, there's these fermented teas, poor tea, that's that's very good. So that's yeah. a very traditional sort of Chinese tea, which is a semi-fermented tea. Really hard, not not easy to get uh, outside. So, you know, they, they do have those poor teas that are just, you know, excellent. There's a, you know, again, uh, this, this one that's bergamot, which is, you know, like the flavoring in Earl Grey tea. So I like Earl Grey tea as well. So they have this bergamot black tea. That's very nice. Yeah. I love all those. And for people that are new to the show, Simon Chang of Peak Tea has been on the show. So go back to that episode to listen. We geek out about tea for an hour. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of good <laughs> stuff. All right. Last question. What is one book that you've read in the last year that has really inspired you? It was this book, I'm trying to think of the title now. It was a, a popular book about Winston Churchill and what happened during the 
Eric Larson, I'm trying to think of the title. Eric Larson was, was the author and it was, uh, it was a recent bestseller. So I picked it up off the sort of shelf. I, I just Googled it. I think it, this is, is it called the splendid and the, and the vial? The splendid and the vial. That's right. That okay, was a Eric. very, very, you know, interesting to me, but also fairly inspirational in, in the way that people approached that time and it yeah. wasn't that they deliberately did it it's sort of the resilience of the human spirit more than anything else of course you know you have to weigh that with then <laughs> then the english thought they would do that to the german people and they thought they would break their spirits but they did not <laughs> so the whole thing was sort of messed up yeah uh, as, I, as happens with war right 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 i love historical nonfiction. though i'm reading a book right now on andrew andrew carnegie who okay. is Scottish, but he came to Pittsburgh where I'm from. So it was really cool to hear, learn about this guy that you hear about. I mean, Carnegie Mellon University that's here, Carnegie Hall in New York. To hear the guy behind that, that name is really a cool book. You should check that out too. Okay. Yeah, I will for sure. But I think it's, it's especially sort of uh, telling, uh, you know, this, this idea that this is sort of, we have to take some risk in life to really enjoy it, right? Like, you know, there's another book called The Coddling of the American Mind, which I also thought was an extremely interesting book. Maybe not inspirational, but sort of concerning more than inspirational. Right. But also very interesting about this culture of safetyism that they talk about, where by making life so safe, you actually diminish it in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's true. Like if you don't take those risks, sometimes like not stupid risks, but by, you know, by treating ideas, for example, as dangerous. And this is one of the things in that book, they talked about how people would, uh, colleges would say, you know, they'd invite a speaker because they had certain ideas. When people didn't agree with those ideas, they would protest and say, oh, the, that guy shouldn't be allowed to speak here because it's dangerous. This whole thing about misinformation and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's true. Like ideas, you know, you have to allow other ideas in. It's not necessarily that they're good or bad. People will have to judge for themselves, but by making that idea, saying those ideas are dangerous and therefore censoring them, Mm -hmm. I think you actually run the risk of much worse problems in that all ideas that eventually change the world are inherently heretic. Like mm-hmm. the sun, you know, the earth, that the earth revolves around the sun was a heretical idea. So mm-hmm. if you simply labeled that as misinformation, like clearly yeah. everybody knows that the sun goes around the earth and therefore it's a heretical idea. It's misinformation. Let's just kill it and, and, and censor you. Well, that would have been a bad thing. Or anything else, like, oh, Einstein says, you know, relativity, it's obviously stupid because it looks so stupid, right? But yeah. if not, no, it's a huge revolution or quantum uh, dynamics. So this this whole idea of safetyism, that you have to protect people from ideas because people are stupid sort of thing, you know, so censorship, I, I, I completely... You know, and there's a whole movement towards, you know, this sort of censorship. Um, yeah. I really just don't, I just, I think we have to be careful with that. Yeah, it's dangerous. I mean, just going back to history, it doesn't take very much of a history, a knowledge of history to know this has never worked out for the common man. 
ever. Yeah, yeah. At all. It's true. I mean, there are ideas which are dumb. Yes, there are. There's but like lots you said, of we, ideas. Let, let it come out so we can all see it's dumb, right? Exactly. It's, freedom of speech is inconvenient but necessary. And we'll all know that it's dumb and it's okay. We can think for yeah. ourselves. Yeah, and that's what one of the, some of the founding fathers really thought was powerful, that you really have to have the freedom to say whatever without fear of reprisal and getting canceled and all this sort of stuff. Because mm -hmm. some of those ideas, like many of those ideas are going to be stupid, but there's going to be a few ideas in there that seem stupid, like quantum mechanics, uh, that actually were not stupid. The ideas kind of be out there so that yeah. people can take them now there ha there's limits of course right like you know you don't want to encourage like pedophiles and stuff right there's there's limits to it there, but, yeah but, but, but rational say, limits rational limits but people say well i have this objection because of this it's like well let them have their opinion people are allowed to think you know we don't want to police how people think right except for those you know you, you can't have it completely free but you know, you know, to say that you can't ever do this, I think that is that is sort of the dangerous, the danger we are we find ourselves in currently. Yeah, well said, very good. I, the, the the title says it all: the coddling of the American mind. It's a great title. Yeah, it's a very good book, actually. It was uh, Doctor Fun. Thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks so much. Well, this was great. At the end of every episode, I'll be answering a question from one of you guys. Nothing is off limits. Ask me anything. And you can send your questions over to me on Instagram or Facebook. As a functional medicine practitioner, it's been fun seeing the questions that have already come in on different food philosophies, wellness trends, and ways to approach overall mental, emotional, and physical health and well-being. Thanks for those. And I'm looking forward to seeing what else is on your mind. Now it's time for another Ask Me Anything. Today's question is from Tanner. Tanner asks, Hi, Dr. Cole. What is the optimal range for iron and what are symptoms of low iron? All right, great question. So as you know, in functional medicine, we're interpreting labs using the optimal range, not the average, which conventional labs typically are looking at that statistical bell curve average of people who go to labs. And we look at that too in functional medicine, but we also want to look at a tighter range within that larger reference range of where is optimal, where does vibrant wellness reside? And iron is no exception to this when it comes to a functional medicine perspective on nutrient deficiencies, which iron is of common nutrient deficiency. So we're looking at other nutrient deficiencies too, and you always wanna put the labs in context with the whole. So it's important with iron specifically to not just look at one iron marker or serum iron or a typical iron blood marker. You wanna put iron in context with a full iron panel, which is looking at serum iron. We look at total iron binding capacity. We're looking at ferritin iron saturation, hemoglobin, hematocrit, and what's called the MC series, or the MCV, MCH, MCHC, basically red blood cell measurements. So what is iron doing? It's oxygenating the body. It's oxygenation of our cells. It's needed for energy and vitality. So the optimal range, to answer your question, Tanner, the optimal range for iron is 85 to 135. That's the optimal range. And we wanna make sure that you're somewhere in the optimal range, but we also wanna make sure 
that all the other iron markers look optimal as well because all of these labs are just snapshots in times. So you could have a normal iron level at that time when you got the lab, but maybe ferritin or stored iron is low or iron saturation is off or hemoglobin hematocrit is off. So you want to always put the labs in context because these things can oftentimes get missed and they're simple labs. These are simple tests that should be ran because they impact so many people. And I see these oftentimes being underlying driver in so many things because iron influences a lot of different pathways in the body. So to answer the second part of your question, what are some symptoms of low iron or iron deficiency? Well, the most common one would be fatigue, slow healing, people that have hair loss or brittle hair, some other symptoms of low iron weakness, pale skin, cold hands and feet, inflammation or soreness or swelling of the tongue, brittle nails, so many things that impact a lot of my patients. One other often miss underlying symptom of low iron is cardiovascular problems, people with coronary heart disease or CHD. A study, I think it was published in the European Society of Cardiology, they found that approximately 10% of new coronary heart disease cases occurring within a decade of middle age could be avoided by preventing iron deficiency. So this is really important that the far-reaching implications of iron deficiency doesn't just impact energy, which is important, doesn't just impact hair and nails and skin and energy. All of that's very important, but we're talking about very fatal things uh, like coronary heart disease. That's how powerful iron is in our body. But balance is important. High iron's not good either. What we call hemochromatosis or iron overload, either primary or secondary hemochromatosis, which you know, primary could be driven by HFE gene variants or genes which code for iron accumulation in the body or iron overload, a secondary hemochromatosis. Maybe somebody's having supplementing with too much iron supplementation or getting it in some how environmentally, that's not good either. That's over oxygenation of our cells, which is sort of a, a inflammatory, rusting, oxidative effect in the body. That's not good. So for all nutrients, it's about the Goldilocks principle, right? Not too high, not too low, but just right. And iron is definitely something that you don't want low, but you don't want high either, which can be a common cause of inflammation. Maybe someone's thinking that they're doing the right thing by having iron supplementation every day without looking at the iron numbers, you definitely want to check in. And not just from supplementation, but also from foods that are rich in iron. Sometimes I find that people, if they're having lots of red meat, which has a lot of benefits, a lot of nutrient density, but some people are just better accumulators of iron. And you want to make sure if you're having a meat heavier diet, you want to look at where your iron levels are because it can be just too much of a good thing. Thanks again for listening to The Art of Being Well. If you have a chance, please rate and review the podcast here. And if you like what you're hearing, hit follow and pass it along to a friend. To see more, head to drwillcole.com slash podcast. I'll be back again next Thursday, and I hope you will too. Talk soon.